Sanjay, you and I have been friends for almost two decades. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. We want to talk a little bit about your professional journey and then your journey as an entrepreneur, more so in the social enterprise space. So Sanjay, you've been three other companies before you joined Amex and then you reached really towering heights in Amex, you know, global head or customer service. Talk to us a little bit about that journey and then uh, help us understand why you are one of the few people who reached such high levels in American Express and then chose to come back to India. Thank you, Ashutosh. My time in large corporation, if I may call it that, has been a time of significant adventure and change. began my career in Jamshedpur working for Tata Steel and then flipped to a completely different type of business. I worked for a tea broking company for five years in Calcutta, which was very different and a completely unique experience. From there, I moved to Aisha Mitsubishi and actually worked in their tractor factory in Faridabad as a finance chief and had amazing experiences at that time. They were going through real transformation. This was the time of total quality. They were partnering with Mitsubishi and completely changing ways of production and of manufacture. I witnessed all of that. I worked in that company for five years. And then around that time, India was beginning to open up. And I found myself uh, with PepsiCo in uh, Mumbai, riding trucks in Palaba, mm-hmm. uh, trying to chase down uh, other trucks from other companies before they got to the retailers. That was heady experience. And lo and behold, the telecom policy came. And with that, I ended up working for Motorola, setting up something that is unknown now called Paging. We built a paging company across four cities and then sold it to one of the larger service providers. And Motorola was looking to send me off to London. But at that time, there was a new phenomenon in town, remote servicing, captive BPO. And Raman Roy, famous personality in the BPO industry, had just moved to G. So I got uh, recruited into that job. And then I spent 15 years with American Express in India and around the world. Sometime in 2007, I was in Singapore. I'd spent about 25 years doing what I'd been doing. And the desire to do something different came upon me. And so I spoke to my company and I said, hey, listen, can you move me back to India? And I, at that time, also engaged with a life coach. And then things started moving differently. And as a result, I'm here today with English Helper. So when you moved back in 2007, had you already made up your mind on what you wanted to do? Or did you go through a lot of churning in your mind on what kind of an organization do I go into before you really embarked upon your journey with English Help? That's a good question because when I moved back, I definitely knew that change was on its way. Mm -hmm. When I moved back, uh, my company was a bit surprised because they wanted to move me to London or New York. Mm -hmm. And I was on a reasonable, you know, professional path. But something urged me to come back to India. And a variety of factors had a, had a role to play. My father had passed away in 2004. I was in New York then. And I felt I wasn't as proximate to him as I should have been around the time that he probably needed me the most. A number of our friends, our loved ones were in India. And when you go overseas when you're 20 or in your teens... Versus when you go when you're 40, I think these are different kinds of experiences. We had a lovely time, but both me and my wife, Panchali, knew that we wanted to be in India because it was home. And so working with my life coach, when I came back, I was going through a period of transition in my head. 
And over 2007-2008, I came to a conclusion that I wanted to do something where I could reclaim my time and also give back using the experiences and the lessons and the learnings that I've gained over my own career. I left American Express without a clear understanding of what I would do, but I definitely knew that it had to be something which I did something useful, knowing what I know. And so I gave myself a year and I went around and met a number of people. I met you uh, when you were heading up Guardian and I met people from all walks of life, teachers and politicians and professionals and entrepreneurs. And I heard everybody's story and each story was wonderful. And slowly a pattern started emerging from me. I felt that for human dignity, especially in this day and time, there are two essential elements. One is good health and the other is a sound, educated mind and the capability to use that education for things that you can do. And I gravitated towards education because in my own life, education has played a big role. My mother was a teacher and the nearest good school was two hours away. I was five and my brother was eight and she'd send us without a chaperone to cross the river, take a rickshaw, go to a station, take a train 14 stations away walk a couple of kilometers, get to school, two hours each way. This was in near Calcutta. And I even remember once when the train shut down, we walked 28 kilometers on rail tracks, came home at midnight, and both our parents, because there were no cell phones or no telephones, were dry-dyed, their tears had run out. And I remember my mother hugging me and then whispering to me, go to bed, you've got to go to school tomorrow. And so I felt the proximity of education in, in some sense. And I know that because of that education, I've been able to do a few things that I've been able to do. And so with that thought, I started exploring education. And having worked in Motorola when, when we had about seven, eight million phones in this country, and having witnessed over two decades the explosive force of technology, taking telephones to more than a billion people, or at least more than a billion connections, and the changes that it's brought about to us as a society and as an economy, I felt that there's a real role of technology in education. And we see that every day in so many ways. And so I started looking for technology in education and I ran into this wonderful innovator out of Boston, a computer scientist of Indian origin, Dr. Venkat Srinivasan. And he and I met and I was really taken in by his thoughts. I was really taken in by the genius of his innovation and thus English Helper and the work that I do uh, today. So I'll come to why English Helper next. I mean, you said you met this genius in Boston. How were you so sure that it was English that you wanted to provide help and not mathematics or any of the other sciences or something else? Why English? I wasn't actually looking for English. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a way to enable literacy and education, literacy and numeracy in our country. And I was looking to deploy technology to enable it to reach lots of people mm -hmm. at great speed and with affordability. And English Helper simply happened because Venkar, his innovation was in the area of English. He had set up a lot of units in India based out of Boston. And one of his struggles in his business was to get people to write emails that made sense to clients. And so he came up with this innovative writing software relying on cognitive linguistics. And as a result of what he had done, English was more or less an outcome. But I'm firmly convinced that it is a good place to be at for a number of reasons. English is like potatoes and tea. Both those articles have come from the New World and from China, and they're very Indian today. And English is very Indian today, as much as it is global today. 
English is also what everybody wants. And I don't think I have the right to define what people want. I have to understand what they want. They want it uh, because it is good socially. They want it as good education-wise. They want it because it's good from a professional perspective. Technologically speaking, entering with English makes it relatively simple because what we do, we can do with any language. But every language is unique and the work that is required, the investments that are required, if you create solutions that are specific to multiple languages, is manifold more than we would be able to afford. And finally, English is possible to deploy across geographies. So we're in 27 out of the 28 states. We're implementing in all of Sri Lanka today. We just launched in Nepal. We are also in Africa, in Sierra Leone, and in, in Latin America, and Guatemala, using the same solution, but simply adapting it to local needs. And that's why English. Amazing. You're absolutely, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think for us in India, English is a unifying language. It's the only language that we can speak everywhere. And I would imagine a large part of the success of Indian technology people around the world is because of their ability to speak and uh, write in English. Correct. And we can use English quite forcibly to tell the people in England about the wrongs they've done to us so that they can understand us Correct. as well. So I think the underlying theme, however, over and above the focus on English is to demonstrate that you can use technology to break the literacy barrier, to actually make people literate very quickly by integrating technology into their reading comprehension curriculum. Once we have proven that, I believe there is all possibility of using the same technology to help people become literate in Hindi or in Gujarati or in Assamese or any other language. Absolutely. You are in 15,000 schools and I think you are touching 50 million students. English is also a very, very aspirational language across most of India. Would that be correct? This is very true. When we go to schools, and I've been to more than 100 schools, sat in actual classrooms, observed teachers, deploy our program. I've been to villages in Punjab, and I've been to Maharashtra, and in the south, in Calcutta, in West Bengal. Every place, when English is taught using technology, when English is taught with the textbook up on the screen, when English is taught in a multi-sensory way, yeah. and kids and the students find English easy. Yeah. Remember, English is a tough language for those who don't have English in their environment, because the famous Bollywood song said it, uh, P-U-T put and B-U-T but, what's the deal here? And when you think of a child reading a book, and T suddenly comes in a word called the, it's very difficult for them to translate the sound of the alphabet into the phonics of the words. And so they struggle with English tremendously, though they aspire for it. But the struggle is so significant that it's very hard for them to retain interest. The minute you make it possible, the minute you make it interesting and interactive, you see the interest of teachers and students. Anecdotally, place after place, we've heard teachers and principals tell us that the days their classes are English using software and it's multi-sensory, it's audiovisual, the classroom fills up. And I think, you know, that kind of indicates the aspiration for English. I've spoken to a number of students and teachers, and from their words and from their emotions, this is a big deal. We have a program that we deploy for uh, youth and adults to help them speak English. It's called English Polo. And every week I try to talk three to five uh, users myself. And it's amazing. Whenever I call somebody 
and I speak to them, and I start by saying, uh, this is Sanjay, may I speak with you? Almost immediately, the other person wants to speak with me. And if I change my approach and I speak in a vernacular, I might find myself shut out because that person is busy. Mm. I try to do this just to find out the reaction and the desire to be associated with English. And mm. so, while there's lots of studies and research and statistics, I have first-hand experience that makes me really believe. So what role do you think all this new artificial intelligence is playing? I mean, you've got Alexa and you've got the other devices, all of them beginning now to speak English. Every smartphone seems to be offering English translation from your vernacular. Now, will that not create confusion in the minds of the young or the student who is one side learning from you in a very formalized manner? And on the other side, he's got all the accents that are coming out of multiple devices. Samsung has its own, Amazon has its own, Microsoft has its own, Amazon Alexa is something I also use. Yes. Let me sort of react to that with a story. We were in Mumbai and huddled in a conference room. I used to work for Pepsi and Coke was going to launch in a week. And we were very worried. And then one of our advisors from overseas, he was from the Philippines, said, you guys are crazy. I don't profess that I support the drinking of aerated beverages. They're not healthy. So let me underscore this example with that caveat. But having said that, he said, in Manila, the average per capita consumption of aerated beverages is 15 times more than Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And in comes Coke, and they will spend big time marketing money. And grandmothers will flock uh, the retail stores to start buying Mm Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola, whatever is cold and is fizzy. All you have to do is make sure you've got a good distribution system. Mm -hmm. So focus on your operation and allow the market to build on its own. More the competition, the greater the awareness. And sure enough, in about five years, that market exploded almost 10 times because of the marketing money and the distribution and the realization. And suddenly refrigerators at homes, when you went to meet your grandmother or your aunt, were open and you were given a Coca-Cola something that or a Pepsi-Cola something that you got to drink only in a shop or a restaurant when we were growing up. And so the analogy really is that the marketplace is not fully understood. The power of technology as a learning tool, as a learning aid, and as a learning choice. It's beginning to happen very substantially in the West. I think we have an opportunity for our students, our children to leapfrog, just like we did with telecom. We don't have to wait for the copper wires to be laid out. Mm. I think we're running a, a big project in Sri Lanka and we've invited and are delighted that MIT is going to partner with us. One of their main objectives is to examine the impact of the exposure to our program, that the impact on students and teachers. Will they start looking at technology with greater interest from the perspective of learning? And will a student, a young child, boy or a girl in Jaffna, reach out to Khan Academy just like somebody in New Jersey does? Because they're both trying to reach out to Facebook anyway. Mm -hmm. And so the question really is, how do you make technology a reality? And so the plethora of technologies coming in are only going to make people very familiar and accept technology as part of education. Mm -hmm. We are in the formal system because the formal system does exist. It'll take a lot of change before education completely transforms itself into the what the future may require. And that might be a decade or two or maybe three. Till then, we have hundreds of millions of students out there who are not even literate. Mm -hmm. We have 1.2 million government schools. We have 250 million children going to school today and a large 
percentage of those children are in government schools. Mm-hmm. Year after year studies show that students in grade 5 can't read grade 2 textbooks. We know that. And so we can't allow our demographic dividend to go out into the yonder so ill-equipped. So for the next decade, I think just getting technology to solve for the basics, even while there's all the bubble of AI and smart tools around us, is going to be a reality. But I think the bubble is going to help solve the problem as well. Wonderful. So continuing from your example of distribution in Pepsi, you said you're in 27 of the 28 states, so you're obviously carpet bombing every school that you can think of and increase distribution. What are the challenges you face as you go and sign up new schools in different states? Some of them are private schools. A lot of them, you said, could be government schools. How do you tackle multiple challenges across bureaucracy, multiple challenges across accents, multiple challenges across working in different states, getting the right kind of teachers? You must have got an army of people just training so let me break this, my response up into two, three parts. Number one is making the use case relevant. Because if you don't make the use case relevant at the last mile, everything else that you do will not suffice. And so from our perspective, uh, the real relevance is to make the teacher and the students want a desire the program. Like any change, the basic principles or the basic tenets of change apply. What we do in each state is we use their textbooks. Mm-hmm. By the way, we work mainly with government and government-aided schools. Okay. The private schools are a very small percentage of our portfolio, at least currently. Mm-hmm. We use the state textbook, which is used in the classroom. So the people who set the curriculum are And happy. these would be English textbooks. English textbooks. The publishers who have supplied the textbooks are happy. And the teachers are happy because they don't have to teach anything additional than what is prescribed to them from a syllabus perspective. We ensure that this is used in the classroom during normal class hours. So nobody has to take a special class or add the number of hours that they have to work or students don't have to stay back late or come early. And finally, we made very uh, resource-like. So if a school has one computer, that is good enough for almost every government school to deploy our program. And we made it even uh, lighter today. If a teacher has a smartphone, which many teachers do, and school has an LED screen or a TV screen, then that's good enough to deploy our program. So at the last mile, what we've done is we've tried to work with the system and integrate our program into the curriculum. And that has worked for us significantly. The other challenge, of course, is for us, uh, to get entry, to find our way to work with governments, to get permissions, to get the approvals, to win the contracts. And that's not something we're good at. We're good at the program that we've developed. We're good at execution. We're good at understanding uh, learning English. But we're not very good at working with large bureaucratic systems. And we always partner with someone to do that. So our first 100 schools across six states were in partnership with American India Foundation. Mm-hmm. So across the country, that's our approach that for the most part, we go in and work with partners who are already working with the government system and who are already working in the space of education. Okay. So they have a core interest in what we are doing and they understand the system and the localness of the system. As you, you know, you've been at this, uh, doing this for about seven or eight years. One of the big challenges I find a lot of entrepreneurs face is scaling up. At what stage do you scale up? And you are now across the whole country and in 27 countries. At what stage of your evolution or growth did you decide that now I'm ready to go beyond my little nucleus of 100, 200 schools to 15,000 schools from my little nucleus of, say, the national capital region or one other state 
to 27 countries. What were some of the steps you took and what were some of the precautions you took while scaling up? I think a sort of exciting example I'll give you is of a company that's currently going through its IPO mm-hmm. in the United States. It's a company called Uber. Mm-hmm. And they started just about a decade ago. And I think the IPO is valued at $100 billion. Billion, yeah. But more importantly, if you think about the number of rides and the number of countries and the number of customers and the number of cabs, we're talking about hundreds of millions. And that's only been possible because of technology. So with technology, there comes, especially depending on its use case, there comes a time where you take your prototype, you build your concept, you prove it, you demonstrate it, you get the right stakeholders aligned. And then technology allows you to leap and bound without any constraints. The only constraints are like it must have been for Uber, are signing up the cabs or dealing with the unions or being challenged by laws and compliance. And so from our perspective, I very much wanted to work with the government system. I had never worked in any intense way, in any significant way with the government systems in India. I was extremely cautious about committing to it. But once we found a partner and we got a sense of what we could do in our first 100 schools, we went to USAID Mm -hmm. and we used their desire to promote literacy in India and partnered with them to actually expand to 5,000 schools in eight states and cover a million students. So that became our second proof of concept, but at scale. And since then, we've begun partnering fairly, fairly significantly across the country. And frankly, the only constraints towards scale are ability to win contracts, get approvals, get belief, get sponsorship. You had referred to training and dozens of people. When we first worked with 100 schools, we had 14 people in the field. Mm -hmm. When we went to 5,000 schools, we expanded the workforce to 22. And now at 15,000, we have 12 people in the field. Because, Because of technology. And the analogy I have is like, you have to start thinking like NASA, As you send your spacecraft out, you have to withdraw into the control room and really have to work with data, information, analytics, and really good communication. Wonderful. A few more questions from you. You have two products. One is Right to Read, and the second is English Bowl. Talk to us a little bit about both these products. What is the difference, and what have you rolled out, and what is your success with both these? The problem we are trying to solve for is, at one level, literacy which is to catch students or to find them while they're still in school or in the classroom and to enable them to be able to read, in our case, English, read and comprehend English. But there are millions of youth and young adults who are already out there either looking for jobs or in jobs who've never had that opportunity. And their first and most immediate uh, cry is, can I speak in English? Can I understand English? Can I hold a conversation? So we've tried to figure out ways to find solutions for both ends of the spectrum. Right to Read is really a program that allows us to take our software into the classroom, bundle the textbook on it, make it available to the teacher during normal class hours. The teacher is still the leader, but suddenly the class dynamic changes. And because it changes and there is multi-sensory exposure, we've seen significant changes in reading comprehension ability of these students. But for those who are already out of the school system looking for a quick way to learn how to speak, an easy way to learn how to speak, an affordable way to learn how to speak, we've actually launched English Polo, which is an app which has a blended approach. Uh, You learn by yourself, like there are many apps Mm -hmm. where you can do that, but you also periodically sign up for a teacher class and the teacher is somewhere remote. Uh, The teacher could be in Hyderabad teaching you in Guwahati or in Guwahati and teaching you in some 
village wow. in Gujarat. Mm. And what is amazing is while the English skill is learned during your self-learning classes, it's like riding a bike in your backyard. Mm -hmm. But when you want to go to traffic, you need somebody, your brother or your yeah. friend or your parent to come along and say, come with me, let me help you build your confidence. The teacher's role is to enable you to be confident to speak in a group. And so our classes are in groups of four or five. And these people are from all over the country talking to a teacher who's anywhere in the country. And this program is really, really taken off. Like any product or program, it requires a little bit of settling down, which we did in the first year. We've just launched it a couple of years ago. And now it's in takeoff mode. We have close to 400,000 people who've signed up and about 25,000 users who've actually paid and converted using the program on a paid Very basis. But we ensure that it's very affordable. There are 10 teacher classes of one hour each, over a 100-day period. And we've made sure that anybody can afford to buy this program. So one now, you know, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. A little personal. Talk about your learning from what I would call your biggest failure. I mean, this will help us to understand, you know, everyone who's watching our podcasts, the area that they love to hear about such successful people as yourselves, you have had a failure and you've learned from it. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I had this amazing idea once, which would shake the earth. I had this amazing idea, which I felt was just the right thing for my company to do. And this was in a previous avatar, working for a large company. And I took this amazing idea to my CEO and he said, it's an amazing idea and you should go for it. I came out of his office already all smiling, all excited. I was already a hero. And within a very short time, a variety of organizational forces came hurling themselves at me and I was out knocked cold. Mm. And I woke up and I said, this is not fair. And I went back to him with everybody involved and he looked me in the eye and he backed away from every assurance that he had given me when I first met him. Yeah. And I was very destroyed. I was devastated. And I couldn't even drag myself out in the morning to go to work. Mm. But anyway, sometime later, he took me out for a meal. And it was very interesting. He said to me that, I want to tell you something. Number one, I think if you were in my position, you would have done what I did. Because you will learn to fight the right fight. And at that time, uh, you weren't my right fight. Mm. And the second, which is more important for you to learn, is that be passionate, but don't be emotional. Because emotion will destroy you, and passion is what will keep you going. So if something doesn't work out, pick yourself up and get ready for the next fight. And I think that was the most amazing lesson of my life. It was terrible to go through what I went through, but it has paid me rich dividends right through thereafter. So one last question. I started as an entrepreneur in my mid-40s, you did the same. Any advice that you can give to all our aspiring entrepreneurs or all our entrepreneurs in our country from your learnings? Ashutosh, I can share three or four beliefs that I have. Number one, be very clear of your own purpose and the purpose of your venture. But don't confuse purpose with strategy. You know, strategy is nothing but a plan. And a plan is already invalid the day you create it because there are so many things you don't know. And so it's very important to be adaptable and adaptive as you go forward because only the lessons of reality will teach you what is possible and what is not. And you have to stop pushing walls if you find them coming in your way. 
The second is that find a balance between optimism and pessimism. Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. So that typically applies for cash. If you forecast that you need 100 rupees, try and find ways to keep at least 400 in the bank because life isn't exactly going to be the way you hoped it would be. The third is about people. And I think there's a difference between people and staff, especially when you're starting. While you need a few people who have the skills that are specifically unique to what you're building, you need more people around you when you start who have a heart that you can bank on. Because when the bullets fly, you want to be able to rely on people for their passion, for their willingness to die for the cause. And as you grow up, you the mix will change. You'll get people with some more skills. But it's really the power and the passion of people who believe that eventually makes the difference in the long term. I have a story. Uh, I met this blind guy, real hero. And he was talking to us at a convention. We had goosebumps by the time he had finished. He had climbed Mount Everest. He had been to the South Pole. And he had turned blind at the age of 12. And it was a devastating experience for him till he found ways to overcome his emotions and start winning. And so I went to him after he had spoken. And I said, Eric, you spoke brilliantly. But can you tell me something that you didn't tell us in the big crowd? And he said to me, Sanjay, if you've come here to ask me whether you should climb Mount Everest, then don't. But if you're crazy enough, it doesn't matter if you're blind. And I've taken that away for myself. And really, that's uh, what entrepreneurship is all about. You've got to be crazy enough to do what you do. Thank you very much, Sanjay. I think this has been an absolutely incredible interaction. And I sincerely hope English Helper spreads all across all the major countries that need to learn English. We We always say that we speak better English in India than the British who gave us the language. And I think what you are doing for this language, a lot of people will bless you, will have their careers completely changed and will give incredible opportunities to so many people in our country. Thank you once again. And thank you, Ashutosh. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you, and see you next week.